Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, it's Wednesday. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, pressure is growing on Boris Johnson to bring in stricter lockdown measures. The number of people killed by coronavirus in the UK has now gone past 60,000. Yesterday's death toll was the highest since May. The Daily Telegraph is reporting the government's SAGE advisory group is seeing a second wave becoming more deadly than the first. Plenty of gloom there then as we enter the winter months. At the same time, growing calls for the Prime Minister to provide an exit strategy for local lockdowns. A new group of cross-party MPs, scientists and medical experts are demanding a triple-headed strategy of control, suppress and eliminate, which is similar to New Zealand's approach. And we know they've been quite successful down there. Well, for more on all of this, we're joined by Willie Rennie. He is an MSP and leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats. Uh, Willie, I've got to get your thoughts on this because there was at least one Scottish signatory to this letter. Seems strange, though, that we're talking about a route out of lockdown at a time when cases and indeed deaths are going up so rapidly. I mean, I think we've got to be cautious, but I think there's also got to be some hope for people. People have got to understand that if they stick by the rules and the numbers go in the right direction, that there's a route out of this. It makes it much easier to comply if you do have that, that roadmap to some form of recovery. If you think this is just going to be what it's going to be like for a long time, it's going to be tough. So let's give people some hope that we can do this. But obviously, we need to base this on the science and caution to make sure that we get on top of this virus. But of course, Willie, it's extremely difficult to do this without also bringing to bear people's fears about their economic situation, their their possibility of being able to make ends meet, and concern about human liberty. And that seems to be what's going on with a lot of these Conservative MPs who've been putting pressure on Boris Johnson. I mean, you can understand where they're coming from, can't you? Yeah, I mean, I've never been somebody who's believed that the, the economy trumps everything. Um, but it is one of the, the harms that's affecting people in their daily lives. There's societal harms, there's educational harms, but there's obviously health harms even beyond the virus. So they've got to weigh up all those things. The difficulty is that the longer that these restrictions go on, the greater the other harms are beyond the virus. And that's where we've got to keep assessing where we are. And that's why I think it's important to have a route map to give people hope We've got to be cautious because this virus is incredibly deadly. It's a really difficult balance act, but I'm on the side of more caution overall to control the virus, but trying to get to some form of steadier state where there's less changing and also hope for people that they get 
And what does that look like in terms of a policy response then? Well, what I think it looks like is having a clear plan for several months ahead so that people can see what is necessary in order to move from one level or one tier to another. So they get the virus down to a certain level, per 100,000, the number of deaths, the number of hospital admissions, etc. If they can get it down and they can see it going down, that perhaps gives them some hope that if they get to the right threshold, they'll move to a more, you know, to greater freedom, greater opportunity for them to go back to work and, and get back to some form of normal life. So that's what it's got to be. It's got to have a degree of transparency, and that's where we're certainly moving in Scotland, and I hope we can move right across the UK towards that as well. Well, let's bring up that point about movements in different parts of the kingdom, because uh, it's interesting the Lib Dems are backing this move by the Alliance Party in Northern Ireland to try and somehow coordinate all the various regimes that exist in Northern Ireland, in Wales, in Scotland and in England. Uh, but in a way, that slightly moves against the idea that uh, of localism, I suppose, that people should be able to decide what's good for their particular part of the country. Yeah, but Christmas has been the great festival of families coming together across the country. So therefore, this is different. And we, are, we want to have the right policies for the right part of the country. We've also got to recognise that if we do, and we hope that we get back to some form of normal Christmas, if that's ever at all possible, then we've got to have some kind of consistency across the UK because people have got relatives that are maybe travelling from Edinburgh down to Cornwall. They want to know that if they're going to make that journey, that the rules are clear and consistent. So let some discussion across the UK to get that consistency for that period if we are able to lift the restrictions in a safe and cautious way. So all we're asking for is the four nations and the various regions in England to come together to make sure that we have some form of consistency so that people don't have to worry when they're sitting with their families about whether they're sticking by the rules or not and whether they've been safe or not. Is that not a bit optimistic, though, Willie? I mean, I see the cases going up as they are now. It just feels like in two months' time, or even less than that, we're going to be in a state where it just isn't safe for anybody to travel anywhere without causing serious risk to to, 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 to health. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I am. That's the big caveat to all of this. We need to make sure that we are really cautious and we're getting on top of the virus. That's the most important thing. But let's have some hope for Christmas that we might be able to get to some form of family reunion. And let's plan for that. You know, it might never come, but let's hope that it can come so that people know that they can travel across the United Kingdom to be together with others you know, and enjoy getting together when they've been restricted from doing so for months. So that's all we're asking for. It's a really simple thing. We want the various governments of the United Kingdom to come together to plan for that period of hope over Christmas so that people have got something to look forward to if they do the right things and suppress the virus now. Willie, what about the whole notion, which which has come across to a lot of people in the rest of, of the kingdom, that in Scotland perhaps they're getting it right in ways we that, that the rest of us aren't, uh, that the SNP government is making the right moves. Uh, you're obviously not part of that. You're, uh, you're in the opposition. Do you see that what the SNP have been doing in Scotland should act as kind of template for the rest of the country? I mean, we've worked constructively with the SNP government because I think it's the right thing to do in the middle of a global pandemic. You've got to put your side of your constitutional differences to, to work together.
together. That's very important, and we'll continue to do that. And Nicola Sturgeon, there's no doubt, is a better communicator than Boris Johnson. There's no doubt about that. Boris Johnson's probably marginally better than Donald Trump. But it's it's all relative, because we've had some significant numbers of deaths in care homes in Scotland. You know, it's one of the highest in the world. Um, we, I think we got carried away. I think the First Minister got carried away over the summer talking about the kind of the elimination of the virus in Scotland and when she should have been using that time to prepare for the second wave. So we don't have sufficient testing. We don't have the tracing capacity so that we can hunt down the virus and drive it out. We didn't do the quarantine spot checks from people who were coming back from holiday or from other countries to the level that we should have been doing. And if we had all that apparatus in place, we might not be dealing with the second wave now that's you know, is hitting Scotland just as much as it's hitting elsewhere. So, you know, I've got my questions and challenges about how the Scottish Government are doing things, and it may look better from further afield, but it doesn't feel like that when we're here. We've lost an awful lot of loved ones. We've got severe restrictions in place, much more tougher than, than other parts, um, and we've got the virus that continues to be on the rise. So... You know, I wouldn't look to Scotland too much for, for guidance, although there are obviously, in terms of communication, better things in that respect, but there's an awful lot more to do. And that's why we're challenging for an increase in asymptomatic testing. We want to make sure that we've got the right kind of financial support for the hospitality sector and other businesses that have been required to close or are effectively closing, even though they're not compelled to by law. All of those we need to get right. So there's an awful lot of work to be done in Scotland to get on top of this virus. And what about the plans to ease pub and restaurant restrictions in Scotland? I see they're uh, coming into force from next week. Is that not a little bit premature? Yeah, I mean, there's a legal challenge from some in the business sector in Scotland to the to the government's um, measures that were announced last week. So I suspect there's a little bit of response to that. I think they're pretty marginal in some ways. Um, I don't think they're necessarily going to make any businesses profitable over the next period. It might make it slightly slightly easier um, for them. There's still kind of an alcohol ban uh, in some areas. So that's going to be difficult for pubs to make any kind of money on the back of that. And the financial support for those businesses that are not compelled to close but are effectively closed because they're not going to make any money, that grant support gets cut by a third because they're no longer required to close by law. So there's an awful lot of work to be done to get this package right. Um, I think overall it's probably not going to make it much better for businesses and that might make it a little bit tougher. Um, and I think perhaps the signal that it sends is not necessarily the right one. Willie, I do just want to ask you one, and if you would answer briefly, because we're running out of time, unfortunately. Yeah. This has moved the dial on independence, though, hasn't it, all this? The, the, the sense that perhaps there's a case being made that's almost irresistible now for moving to a new referendum. Oh, gosh. On the top of 10 years' debate about independence and all the arguments, whatever your views on Brexit, and now with the pandemic, the last thing that Scotland needs is yet more division and exhaustion with another debate on independence. God, let's move on to something about rebuilding the economy in Scotland rather than more division. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. 
And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before, tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And Roger, we start with a new report about young people. Tell us more. Yeah, the Resolution Foundation, pretty startling report actually, showing young people and minorities whose jobs were spared by the furlough scheme are now being laid off. According to a survey by YouGov for the foundation, about a fifth of young people who were furloughed have now lost their jobs. And a similar percentage of black, Asian and minority ethnic workers have also been cut. The think tank found only a third of the young who were let go have been able to find new work, and the findings indicate Britain is facing the highest youth unemployment in four decades. Yeah, a blow after a blow. Those who got through 2008 now having to face this. It's not easy out there if you're a young person. Very grateful not to have been furloughed myself and my sympathies with those who are struggling with all of this. Uh, And then we are sticking with the pandemic, as we often do. The Lib Dems and the Alliance Party in Northern Ireland calling for virus restrictions to be the same across all four nations this Christmas. Christmas is something we're starting to think about a lot. If not present buying, how are you going to get around? Whether are you going to get around? So in this letter, they've written uh, that travel between the nations is inevitable during the festive season. Those policies have got to take that into account. They've called for a four-nation summit to agree on a shared plan. But the Environment Secretary has told the BBC it's too early to say what restrictions will be in place. And looking at the rising virus numbers, it does indeed seem too early to be saying anything about what's going to be happening in two months' time. And just because it is a grim situation doesn't mean that other grim situations aren't recurring as they have before. Remember about migrants trying to make their way across the Channel? Well... Two children and two adults died after a migrant boat sank off the coast of northern France near Dunkirk. Charities say it should save, serve as a wake-up call to those in power. The group Care for Calais has urged the government to create legal routes for refugees to reach the UK. But Boris Johnson wants to, quote, remove the incentive for people trying to take this crossing. And he's pledged to crack down on the gangs facilitating them. And you'll be unsurprised to learn that that's very much the tone taken by the Daily Mail today. Their splash tragedy in the channel. When will ministers stop deadly trade? More than one way of skinning a cat. But as you say, a very tragic situation there. Uh, And then finally, on the Brexit front, we've got trade talks between the UK and the EU. They continue in London today. Little indication of how those negotiations have progressed so far. The UK says it's hopeful a deal could be struck. We have that optimism. It hasn't always been the case in the last few weeks. Fishing is the bone of contention, if you'll pardon the pun. The EU Council President uh, Charles Michel saying that negotiations are at their most difficult stage. Hard to know really how things are going when it is all so intensive, uh, very little being briefed to the media. 
Yes, there's a kind of tunnel, even if it's not an official tunnel that they seem to have gone into. But now let's go back to that story we mentioned at the beginning of the programme about the pressure mounting on Boris Johnson over his handling of the pandemic. According to Bloomberg reporting, Conservative Party discipline seems to be, well, rather fractured. Lots of talk about frosty meetings in cold rooms. Uh, let's get a bit of insight on that from Bloomberg Opinions, Therese Raphael. Therese, welcome to the programme again. Now, um, it seems to be Northern MPs, MPs, what, what was the Red Wall that became the Blue Wall, Northern Tory MPs, putting pressure on Boris Johnson for a lockdown exit, a way out of this. Um, how damaging is this, really, for Boris Johnson at this stage? Well, I think at this stage, it's more of a warning than a threat, so... You have the Tory MPs from the North who are worried that the leveling up agenda, the one they sold to voters and which got Boris Johnson elected in December, is getting sidelined because of the pandemic. Now, they're not sort of threatening to, uh, you know, to, to overthrow this government or install an, a new Tory leader. Exactly. Um, it's not the level of threat that we saw the European research group, the very staunchly pro-Brexit group posed to Theresa May, but it's putting him on notice that he cannot simply avoid the question of what's going to happen to that agenda. They want him to define how the lockdown is going to be, um, uh, how he's going to exit the lockdown, how he's going to dispense with the current level of restrictions, but also to ensure that the broader leveling up agenda um, is one that he plans to follow through with. Now, the, the problem with that is it's not a very well-defined agenda. It's about you know building new hospitals and uh, improving opportunities for school children. But uh, he's left himself a lot of scope there. And now what they want to see is, you know, in black and white, what's he going to do for the North? Well, th that's the problem, Therese. It's very easy to say that you're pro-leveling up because no one really knows exactly what it means. And if you look at the current state of the party, one thing we know they were all elected on is Brexit. I'm going to be a bit of a doomster here and say, is this terminal after Brexit is over? Are we going to see this party continue to fall apart because there is no other consensus? Well, I think that's why this issue is so central to Boris Johnson's legacy, to his future and, you know, to the party's hopes for re-election um, you know, in the next election. Now, there, uh, there are several things that make it more difficult now. One is that, you know, it's going to be harder to withdraw the new levels of state spending that Rishi Sunak has put in place. And if you are going to continue uh, spending at that level or some of these programs, then what's going to be left for the leveling up agenda? And, you know, secondly, the economy is going to be smaller. So there's just less pie to redistribute and more of a prospect that we're going to see a widening of regional inequalities, which, you know, always plays into the politics of the North. And that, you know, also provides an opportunity, uh, you know, for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party to come in and say, you know, actually, Boris just used the levelling up agenda, uh, you know, to get elected. He He's ridden to power off Brexit, but he's not really serious. The government is going to have to come back and really show results. And I think they're very aware of that. And you know, the, the, the other thing to note is that this uh, Northern Research Group, it's led by uh, a Tory MP, Jake Berry, who's long been an ally of Boris Johnson and a friend. So the tone of the group is not, you know, uh, it, it doesn't have the hostility you might expect if we were talking about a, a full-scale rebellion, but it is a warning. 
Yes, I mean, and, and obviously the factors, the things in his in-tray, Brexit, dealing with the virus, trying to reconcile the North, levelling up, they're all fairly familiar, but I suppose what's hoving into view now is something that could make a big difference, but in a way, I, I think it's been on the back burner for a lot of Tories, which is what's going to happen on the other side of the pond, what's going to happen in Washington, and of course we're moving close to that moment, potentially, maybe it'll all stay the same. Uh, but Dres, I know you've been doing a little bit of sort of research and, and thinking about the impact of the US election potentially on Boris Johnson on what happens here. What's your sense about what the issues are really at this stage? Right. I mean, I think what we can say is that uh, the Trump uh, and Johnson administration have looked like natural allies on the surface on a lot of things. Donald Trump is a huge Brexit supporter. Uh, Boris Johnson has often been portrayed uh, a a bit of a caricature in the U.S. as kind of a mini Trump. So that suggests that the uh, Johnson-Biden White House, if Biden were to win this election, would not necessarily get off to the best start. And we also had a pretty strong reaction from the Democrats and Biden himself when uh, when Johnson uh, announced that they were going to break international law with this internal market bill. So there's some repair work to be done. But beyond that, uh, I think what we have to say is that the conservatives in the UK and the Democrats in the US have quite a lot in common. And Boris Johnson will also have a lot of opportunity to uh, build a closer relationship with Biden. The UK has the G7 presidency this year. So the the new U.S. president or uh, Biden, if he's elected, would come to the UK for that. Also, Johnson is interested in expanding that to include um, Australia, South Korea, India as a sort of uh, group of democratic nations. Partly this is about counterbalancing Beijing. And that's something I think the U.S. administration, whether it's Trump or Biden, would be very much on board for. Finally, we have the climate summit um, in Glasgow. Biden would want to rejoin the UN climate change agreement. Uh, That's a a, a big priority for Johnson. So there's quite a lot that the two can build on. I think relations between the Johnson and the the Biden campaign have not been uh, particularly strong or close. And so there's a lot of work to be done. At the same time, Johnson's going to want to uh, build relations with Kamala Harris and also with uh, the new Senate. Uh, and Therese, what about that great Brexit prize that is a US trade deal? Back in 2016, we had uh, Obama saying that the UK would go to the back of the queue. Is that the sort of mentality that's going to be resurrected if we get Biden into the White House? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I guess I'm going to depart with, from conventional wisdom a little bit and say that a US-UK trade deal is just not the most important thing in in that relationship. Yes, uh, Boris Johnson would like it. It it would be uh, a symbol of post-Brexit global Britain. But, you know, really the two uh, countries trade enormously as it is. And any deal is just going to deliver, uh, you know, some improvements on the margin, but at huge political costs. So there's not going to be a deal that the Biden administration is going to approve and that's going to pass um, the U.S. Congress that doesn't give American agricultural interests uh, more of an entree into the British market, and that's going to have political costs for Johnson. So I'm not sure it's it's, it's not going to be a huge priority for the Biden administration. I'm not sure that it's the great win that um, Johnson would like to see. I think we're more likely to see the two uh, increased trade relations through the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, uh, than we are through a, an early um, U.S.-U.K. Tra- trade deal, I would think. Yeah, it's a very interesting moment, I guess. In the end, do you think, I mean, very, very quickly in a sentence, can 
Biden and Johnson do business? I think absolutely they can do business. And the broader interests of the U.S. and U.K. are so much more aligned um, than, you know, any disagreement between two leaders, um, you know, you know, would be able to to undermine that. And we're talking security interests, trade interests, interest in rebuilding um, international institutions that have languished um, under the Trump administration. So I think we'll find very, very quickly that the there will be a mm. lot of uh, uh, meetings and talks and, and efforts to uh, build a, a close rapport between the two uh, administrations if Biden were to win. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.